Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. Today, my guest is Bruce, the founder and managing partner of London-based VC fund MMC. MMC invested into Gusto in 2013, only one year after we launched. What I like about Bruce is his massive integrity, his growth mindset, you know, and how relationship-focused he is. I've always felt I can just call him, tell him anything, and he's been supportive. He's a lawyer by training, became a banker, eventually leading M&A at Merrill Lynch, and at the turn of the century started MMC when venture capital was still embryonic in the UK. In this episode, Bruce will share what he believes foreshadows startup success, how he works with founders, and why he decided to become a professional coach. Bruce, what a treat to have you on here. Uh, you have had so much success, but you were not always a founder or an investor. I would love to briefly just hear your story. Where did you grow up? Well, Timo, it's a pleasure to be here with you too. So I have a, a different background, really, to, to many of the people you've been interviewing um, on the podcast. So I grew up in what is now called Zambia in Central Africa. I was born there and spent the first 14 years of my life there. And then my family moved and I came back to the UK and went to school in the UK, boarding school. But my father moved to Ghana, West Africa. So in my teenage years, I used to go out to Ghana. So um, Africa was a very, very big part of my my upbringing. And then um, I went to university in the UK. I read English, an indication, of course, that whatever you read doesn't necessarily bear any resemblance to what you do in life. And when I graduated, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in life. So the easy decision to make is like qualify as a lawyer. So many people do. So I did. I qualified as a I qualified as a barrister and did my pupillage. And that was a very, very bad time in the UK. I mean, the memories now are returning of the 70s, given the mm. cost of living crisis we're having. But it was a very bad time in the UK. The, the grave diggers were on strike. Everybody was on strike. Mm. And having lived around the world, I didn't really want to uh, commit to um, a career at, at the bar. Which, and it's a, it's a very serious career progression and requires you know full-time commitment. So I was very keen to get experience in the U.S., and so I went about trying to get hired by a U.S. law firm. And I was eventually hired by a firm called Skadden Arps, which was a specialist in M&A and was a small firm when I joined. I was the first foreign lawyer on the team wow. and has now expanded into a gigantic uh, worldwide profession uh, firm. I spent two years there and the plan had been to spend two years in the U.S. and come back. But Towards the end of the two years, I was approached by an investment bank, by Merrill Lynch, which again, you know, it's not that long ago, but you forget just how recent internationalization is. So mm. Merrill Lynch had a few offices around the world, mainly focused on the private client side, and they needed an international lawyer to come in for the first time, hire somebody with international experience. And they asked me if I was interested. And so I joined them. 
And it was a great job. You know, I had to go to Australia to get a banking license. I had to go to Argentina to get a securities license, wow. and all that kind of stuff. And I was, um, yeah, it was, it was great. Uh, a lot of fun. And then I did that for uh, a few years. And then the boom in the in the city of London started to happen. And that was the mid 80s. And Merrill Lynch was uh, doing more deals than it could actually consume or, or process and asked me if I'd moved to London uh, for three months and, and help out in a critical period. So I asked my wife if uh, she'd be interested in moving to London for three months. Had I said to her, would you be interested in moving to London for the rest of your life? I'm sure the answer would have been no. Uh, so we came over here and that was, you know, what, 35 years ago or so. And I then helped out on the processing of deals and, and, and executing them and so forth, and then moved into uh, winning deals and becoming a proper investment banker. And that was really, um, uh, you know, being thrown in the deep end, having to learn very, very fast. You know all about that. Mm -hmm. And so then I had a career as an investment banker for um, 10, 12 years. And then I started investing during the build-up to the internet bubble in the late 90s. And it was really interesting. Investing as a, as a business angel uh, is really interesting. Nobody had any time or something. I didn't have any time to, to do any legal reviews or do any due diligence. So you're going with your gut, which is, you know, so far so good. And so I thought, actually, there was a big opportunity here that the angel community in the UK uh, was very, very new, unlike the US, where actually angel investing in California only got going in the late 90s as well. It's not... It's not mm you know, decades and decades old. But the difference was in the US, the people who were turning into business angels were the guys at tech firms who were making millions through the IPOs that were going on there mm. in, in you know, 95, 96, 97. Whereas in the UK, the typical angel background was a city professional or a big company executive. Mm. So with a very different risk appetite from the kind of guy who'd made, you know, 30, $40 million in the IPO and, you know, keen to do that again and, and take risk. So it was a very sleepy sort of angel community in the UK. And I thought that there was definitely an opportunity to build something. And that's how MSC started. Wow. And how do you kind of conceptualize very international career, lots of time in Africa, to then decide to commit to a very localized activity? Well, first of all, when I left London to go to New York, it was like a kind of provincial town compared with New York. <laughs> I mean, just on that, it was incredible. I mean, I, I, I did my pupillage with a very distinguished uh, lawyer who then became a high court judge. And every, everything would stop at four o'clock for biscuits and tea. And then everybody is gone by five, 5.30. If you were still around after 5.30, you were seen as too keen. And keen was a very, very a bad thing to be. <laughs> very different. And, okay. And also, um, there were no word processors. I'm talking about 78, 79, right? Mm -hmm. And... Um, so we would write out our opinions in longhand or our pleadings in longhand, and then they would go off to a, a firm that did sort of secretarial services. And about three months later, they would come back, you know, to be reviewed. You know? Wow. And, and so it was a very leisurely process. And I moved to New York and I joined this law firm, and they actually had a proce word processing department working wow. 24 hours a day. I couldn't, I just, I couldn't <laughs> believe it, right? So... So, but by the time um, I had returned to London, so you know, six or six or so years later, I mean, London has also developed rapidly, uh, and so by the time you know I started MMC, uh, London was was a very international, very dynamic, very exciting place to be, and 
And this tech boom that was sort of starting to take off in, in London, it was the very, very early stages, was, was a really, really interesting time to be, to be doing investing and, and learning about investing. And of course, we opened uh, our doors on April 1st, 2000, just before the bubble burst. Mm. We, survived wow. the, we survived the internet uh, implosion, bubble bursting. And then we were around, of course, when things started to take off again, you know, come 04, 05, until the next crisis, of course, the financial crisis. So it was a very, very good learning experience. But presumably, you didn't have much funding in the early days. How did you manage to have a fund? So we didn't. That's a very interesting uh, point. So we started off as a syndicate of angels. So I met the other two founders, who were Alan Morgan and Alan Kakel, MMC, through investing in a, as angels in a company, a company called um, World Golf, actually, that uh, subsequently was a very big success with top golf driving ranges in the US. And, and now they have a, something called Top Putt in the UK, which is doing quite well. So I'm still an investor in that company. Wow. 25 Love years that. later, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm a very, I do take a very long-term view on things. <laughs> So we, so the, the idea is that we'd invest our own money. Um, we would hire a team, an engine room that would attract the deals, sift the deals, structure them, do the due diligence, and offer it out to the syndicate. And that's how we started. Unfortunately, quite quickly there were friends who wanted to do this with us, and it, it, it grew. So we were a syndicate of angels. The disadvantage of that, of course, is that you have to build, you have to build the, the book for mm -hmm. each deal on a deal by deal basis. And also, you're not making enough fees. We charged people a joining fee, but we weren't able really to charge management fees. Mm. Um, and you need fees to really build out the team. So it became obvious that we would need to raise a fund. And the easy way to raise a fund, given what we knew and the contacts we had, was private clients. And EIS was available. Mm -hmm. And so we, we launched a, an EIS uh, fund. And we grew from there. Uh, and uh, last year, we were the biggest raiser of EIS funds in the UK. But from day one, I mean, EIS had a mixed reputation those days because the, the rules allowed you to basically go into deals that were not risky. And so there were tons of solar deals around where you got the, the tax advantages of EIS and you also got the tax subsidy of the, of the tariffs and the grants and stuff available in the solar community. All of that since been closed down. And we never did any of that. From day one, we were looking at risk-based companies, you know, mm -hmm. proper companies trying to grow and taking a risk. So that's, that's, that's how we got going. And so you're you're leaving kind of a job where work just hits your desk all day, you work long hours, and then all of a sudden you're on your own, you know, a few people. But if you don't do anything, if you don't get up your desk, nothing happens. Like, how did you find it psychologically? How did you get, you know, accustomed to it? How did it feel? Well, you know, I think to some extent that my uh, early days in Africa and elsewhere helped because I ended up doing every job you can do in a company. You know, I, I was a compliance officer. I did the books. Mm. You know, I got the furniture. You know, I, everything, you, everything you do, I did. So I've done all the roles at MMC. So and that, that's quite good training, actually, for running a company, frankly, uh, when you've done all that stuff. It was a bit of a shock at first. I must say I, I, I did miss my secretary when I, when I, uh, when I started it. But... The great privilege was that we we attracted very young people. We didn't have the capital to hire people laterally and pay you know big bonuses. So we we went for very smart people who had been well trained by in consulting or banking or one of the professions, and then we hired them in, 
you know, and then we worked with them, threw them the deep end, worked with them. So our very first hire was Ricky Knox, you know, went on to found Small World and mm-hmm. Tandem Bank. And we built up a, a really, really good team of, of very smart young people, uh, keen to learn. And that was, a, that was a, it's been fun uh, ever since. Amazing. And and at what stage, I mean, by the way, did the term VC make any sense back then? Did people have associations or how new was yes. it? That's that's a that's a that's a very insightful question. Yes, we were told. So to go when I tried to raise this EIS fund, I went to see uh, IFAs who were advising wealthy clients. I went to see the banks, and people kept on saying to me, "You need to change your name. You don't want the word ventures in there. Nobody wants to take any risk." And and that <laughs> that's the fundamental thing, actually. That you know, unlike the US, the the UK did not have a developed risk appetite. And that impacted us. You know, it took us a long time to work out the meaning of the power law, because if you had a failure, you tended then to invest in in a company with less risk. Mm. So, you know, we were seeing, you know, our exits were, you know, two to three times type exits. We weren't getting the really big exits. We did eventually get a 10 bagger out of um, Total Mobile. But but. You know, it took us time to mm-hmm. learn about the power law and and educating our investors, actually. I, I would say that we've made a major contribution to mm-hmm. educating private clients in the UK about taking risk and understanding that you can't get huge returns without taking risk and, and accepting failures. And and we've now we've now demonstrated that. I'm I'm, I'm pleased to say, but it's taken a long. We had, it took a long time to learn that kind of thing. And I'm sure it's it's one thing to have a mental model that says X percent of companies will fail to then actually live through it and educate people on the journey. That must have been quite hard. How clear were you kind of on what losses are acceptable in the early days? Well, we wouldn't emphasize them. Um, we would, <laughs> but certainly uh, we, we when we raised the funds, we said, look, our track record is that 25% of our companies, around about 25% of our companies fail. When I spoke to some American friends, they said, oh, you're not really a VC at all. You know, you need at least, at least a 50% failure rate to be call yourself a VC. But that's how it sort of started. But failure, and that's, I mean, that's another major change in, in, the, in the whole UK psyche, right? I mean, failure was a kind of career-ending, a hugely embarrassing, shameful kind of thing to experience. But now, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, it's a positive, actually, on people's CVs. They've experienced failure because that, mm-hmm. you know, you learn a hell of a lot from that. Mm. And unfortunately, we didn't, you know, our failure record wasn't so bad that we closed down. You know, we, there were still mm-hmm. people willing to take the risk and back us. And of course, with time and experience, you know, your record just gets, if you're persistent, your record gets better and better. Mm-hmm. And talk me through the, the deals you saw in the early days, just the types of deals, because today everyone talks about AI and, you know, certain topics, but surely the topics have changed in the last 20 years. Well, I think, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago, um, unless you were doing biotech, which I think has been specialist all along, firms were all generalist. So you looked at a lot of stuff. One of the things that the whole industry has learned that specialization means you really do know an awful lot more about the sector and you can win the trust of founders much more easily. They know that you're that you're going to really work hard to understand the challenges and, and strategic uh, issues and stuff like that. So, you know, most firms have gone now with a degree of specialization. We, we, were, we were quite early on that. But we did look at a whole load of stuff. You know, we did a dental, imp- a dental implant business. We did a 
a, a gel that was supposed to keep plants alive longer. Amazing. <laughs> you know, Amazing. Uh, it's sort of embarrassing to, uh, to we backed something called BritArt, which was trying to sell new art online from unknown artists. I mean, that's three mountains to climb rather than just one. Uh, you know, so that was one of our early failures. Yeah, we, we learned the hard way. And I mean, presumably you invest money today and then X years later, you have a feedback loop. It either works or it doesn't work. But there must be some kind of early indicators. You know, how quickly do you, do you get a sense for whether this is working or not? Reasonably early. And that all depends on the quality of the team we've backed or the individual we've backed. The, the venture capital is a is a minority game. You know, it's not like private equity where you um, have a majority and you basically own the company and you hire mm -hmm. and fire until you get the right team. You know, it's a, we're a minority investors, so the partnership, because it is a partnership with the with the entrepreneur, is is critical. And that's mm -hmm. what has to work. If that doesn't work, you know, you know, you're in, you're in trouble. And so, you know, we learned over the years, try to, to not invest where basically all that was wanted was our money because founders who manage their board in such a way, they just give them the information they want them to have. In my experiences, always leads to trouble down mm. the road. So working with, with, with the team and so understanding the problems or the challenges from, from the very beginning and You know, noting all the challenges in the IC paper, that the investment committee paper that approves the deal, and then, you know, six months later, seeing how things have developed, have you know, have the what's happened to the, the things we wanted to you know change in the company or mm -hmm. things we wanted them to do, you know, and just that kind of progression, working with the founders, you know, you have to be reasonably structured. Uh, but I think if you if you do that uh, and you are close to the founders and you really do understand the sector and the business. You get a pretty early insight into whether this is going to be a huge success or not. Okay, so founders seeking partnership, you know, real, real honesty, creating psychological safety, leaning into tough decisions, sharing their challenges. Are there other attributes that kind of foreshadow success in, in entrepreneurs? Well, <clears throat> I'd rate integrity very, very highly. Mm -hmm. And I would rate resilience very highly. Indeed, that my experience of my own experience of building MMC, uh, you know, persistence and resilience are two absolutely critical qualities. And and then the willingness to hire people who are better than you. I do think that's a that's a crucial attribute that can make a very big difference to success. Mm -hmm. You know, not being so consumed by your own ego um, or fearful of, 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 of smarter people, um, you know, outmaneuvering you or something like that. But being able to recruit people who are smarter than you, better than you, um, I, I rate very, very highly as well. I, I love that point. And I mean, every time at Gusto, when we hired people, exceptional people, we saw the immediate change in metrics and in everything, my life became better. And it's, it's been the biggest learning so far. It's all about people. Well, your 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 recruitment process has always so impressed me, Timo. I mean, I, I forget how many people you interviewed for the CFO role. I mean, it, I think it was over 50, right? A I lot, mean, a the lot. trouble you go to to make sure you've got the right person is hugely impressive. We, we do, and we expect our team to spend X percent of their time on, you know, these, these pipelines. And the benefit is you build long relationships. If you meet 50 people, A, you learn a lot, and B, 
you know, with five of them, you remain in contact and you never know when, when you need somebody else in the business. And it's, it's quite powerful. It's fun. But, but no, I'm, I'm glad to hear. You, you mentioned resilience. Talk me through the tough moments because everyone talks about success and clearly MMC and you personally have had such, such huge success. But, you know, when, when did you have the dark moments? Well, I've had I've I've had occasion to have to go to an employment tribunal with a with a with a CEO and spend four days uh, giving evidence. I'm glad to wow. say I won that I won that case. Mm. I've had to investigate a company and discover all kinds of bad practice, and wow. then and then you know the worry on that in in those situations because you've got you know you've got the responsibility of your investors' money in that the need to make sure it's fixed in a way that if you can recover the situation. Mm -hmm. um, so there have been some, you know, difficult times like that, which again, you know, is it's just critical to learn from that. And, and, and those were mistakes. We didn't build a good relationship of trust with the entrepreneur that we ended up in court with. Mm -hmm. And the company that, you know, we had to investigate, I think we probably hadn't done as good due diligence as we should have done. I mean, in that case, actually it recovered and we turned, it was a good turnaround story, but but we're not really turnaround investors. Sometimes mm. it turns out that way. <laughs> okay, fascinating. And and just from a timing perspective, uh, I mean, obviously today energy cost is nine times higher than in the U.S. Goldman Sachs, Citibank are predicting twenty percent inflation in the U.K. You know, we're seeing quite quite dark economic clouds or, or proper storm. But if you look at the last 20 years of, of venture capital, your own investments, like how, how would you compare kind of the cycles you've seen? Well, I think this, this is going to get worse, I think. But, you know, the 07, the, the 08, 07, 08, 09 financial crisis was pretty, was pretty grim when you were in the middle of that storm, right? And the, the bursting of the internet bubble, we were was obviously much, much earlier in our existence. So we didn't have a big portfolio, but it was it was that was testing. And then when you read about uh the, the you know the Sand Hill Road venture capital firms and 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 the impact of of, of the bursting of the bubble on them, particularly uh, coming off raising huge amounts of money and, and with great success. You know, I, several were talking about closing down. I think even Kleiner Perkins were talking about the need to just return money to investors and close down. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you're in the middle of that storm, it seems like it's never, ever going to get better and, uh, you know, the end of the world. But that, so far in human existence, that's turned out not to be the case. And and recovery comes, you know. So um, that's one thing I can I can uh, I can impart to my colleagues and to our portfolio companies. You know, we have been through this kind of thing before. I mean, there are things you need to do, obviously, as you go into this kind of storm. You need to make sure that the companies are well capitalized, that there's good cash runway, and we've gone through the whole portfolio uh, doing that, and we're we're actually. We've actually decided on even those that were, you know, had sort of 24 months. I think we're thinking that we need to actually increase that kind of runway just to be on the safe side. Mm. Um, there are things you, you need to do and to make sure that, you know, you're running as efficiently as you can be. But I think if you take those fairly elementary precautions, you know, and you've got a, you've got a good business, one will get through. Mm hmm. And I mean, I guess what's different today is you don't have the Fed put. Uh, you know, in the in the past, you always had the Fed um, or, or the Bank of England inject liquidity. But now yeah. we're in a very different situation. We moved from QE to QT. Cost of capital has already gone up by 10, 10x, uh, at least when you look at debt and interest rates. 
And so how, how do you feel like this is different compared to other crises? The causes are different from... Mm. I mean, you might argue, actually, the internet bubble, where, where cost of capital just was, was zero, basically, was, mm. was quite similar. Because mm. capital was, was basically just not being priced properly, you know, the mm. last few years. It, but the causes, of course, are very, very different from the financial crisis. And indeed, you might argue that central banks have contributed quite heavily to the as a cause of the problems we've now got, right? But, you know, running a business is the same whatever particular market situation you've got. You know, you've got to win your customers, keep your customers, keep your costs down, strive to, to maintain margins and, and ensure you've got liquidity, and again, you know, we we now have a much, much more sophisticated investor base in the UK. You know, we've got mm. a lot of very experienced, you know, very sizable funds with capital. And if the capital hasn't disappeared, everybody's still sitting on all the capital they've raised, right? Mm. And and nobody wants to return it if they can avoid it. So that's that shouldn't be a problem. If you've got if you've got the right backing mm-hmm. and you've got investors who haven't lost their confidence uh, and we are seeing a bit of that in the market you know but if people retain their retain their long-term confidence in the businesses they backed then th- th- we should be in a much better position now we've got a much much deeper infrastructure in the early stage market absolutely i think that's a powerful point and i love the point you made around don't don't predict the unpredictable don't create a rational prism you know in a, in an irrational world and there's so many unintended consequences and second order you know impacts and so on but control the controllables and that that's kind of what we're trying to tell everyone at gusto at the moment you know the the size of the opportunity has not changed at all we're still embryonic our share of stomach is is tiny um, but what has changed, obviously, is the next 12 months, you know, look look a bit more difficult. And we see colliding trends that all of them kind of impacting our customers negatively. And so we just got to double down on what we can control. Um, I think that's a powerful message um, you made. Absolutely. And you're doing a great job at that, I must say. So talk me talk me through the team. I mean, MMC now has a large team. Back when you started, it was a very humble team. And how what have you learned about yourself, leadership, the team? I think the one thing I would congratulate myself on is that I I, I was willing to hire people who are better than me, and I, that's I've been consistently doing that. So much of our success, the, the vast majority of our success, is because the team is is, is, is such high quality. But of course, we used to, um, you know, we, we would hire people, we would train them up, and then somebody else would come along with a much bigger check and recruit them away. So we had a bit of that. At one, but at one point, actually, I felt that I was kind of like a kind of university for the VC market, right? Um, <laughs> and indeed, we do have a big alumni group. And we have an alumni get-together every year. I always look forward to it. We're having it in November. And I think I've got 20 people coming, wow. 20 alumni coming, wow. uh, plus, plus our current team, which is now 27, 28. Mm-hmm. But of course, the great thing about what we both do, right, is it's such interesting work. And it's it attracts the best young people. And also it's socially acceptable. You know, <laughs> you know, I was a banker when that was quite a socially mm-hmm. advantageous thing to be. I, you were the same, right? <laughs> I, I think nowadays it's probably much more difficult. You don't get invited to as many dinner parties now as you w- would have done, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So, but VC, everybody wants to be in VC or wants to join a startup because... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's seen as socially responsible, you know, we're creating jobs, we're building businesses, we're building the future of the economy. That's a tremendously exciting 
thing to be doing. So we're very, very lucky that we can attract such talented people. And then the quality of the startups, just look at, I mean, look at Gusto, the quality of the individuals now starting businesses, you know, it's, it's been transformed in the last 20 years. And, you know, most of the good universities, uh, everybody wants to join the entrepreneur club and 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 look into joining, you know, uh, start joining startups or into VC uh, when they graduate. So that's reflected at MMC. I mean, I'm a generation older than everybody else. Sometimes, you know, I feel that you know, having grey hair, or in my case, white hair at this point, comes in handy. You know, um, I have I have been through bad times before, for example, and also hopefully in life you 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 improve your judgment and you rec- you you learn from experience and you recognize patterns or, or things that have happened before and you avoid them repeating so but it's a huge privilege to work with a bunch of late 20s early 30s uh, people yeah i feel the same uh, we were not able to pay people money in the early days and so we had to sell the dream and the purpose and the passion and It, it has gotten so much easier in the last 10 years in the UK. 10 years ago, going in a startup, you know, leaving a bank, leaving a hedge fund, in my case back then, was still quite weird. And now it's completely accepted. Everyone does it. If, if you don't join a startup, what's wrong with you? Or a VC fund. And it's changed. That's so encouraging for the future of the UK economy, right? Yes. I mean, it's just, I mean, and, and London, of course, is the is the heart of all of that. It's, it's, it, it's so dynamic, so... So, so, so promising. Mm. Just on the topic of the future. So what, what topics interest you the most today? I mean, obviously, um, you have a very diversified portfolio, lots of interesting companies. But if you name one, two, three kind of trends or, or areas. So we have verticals, you know, fintech and, and uh, health tech. But, but actually, we tend to invest um, on the basis of a kind of horizontal thinking. So we see AI as a as a, as a, as a kind of software layer that mm-hmm. it applies to any company really and uh is is just changing is changing the world. So so we are very very interested in machine learning AI driven businesses. Um we've published heavily on the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh one of the huge attractions in Gusto was the fact that you were using data analytics. I think your sixth or seventh person was a data yes. scientist, right? That and then, well, actually, machine learning and and data analytics generally are, are two huge themes that we see as very, very promising. We've put our our, our toe in the water in blockchain, and uh, we've got three very interesting companies uh, in that sector, and um, we want to do more there. So these tend to be, you know, investing on on new emerging technologies um, that are that are very, very promising. So so that's that's what's driving us at the moment. Yes, and I mean the the potential these have on every human person. I mean, it's just it's so fascinating. You have to be an optimist when you look at kind of the technologies, the young people, the talent. It's it's very powerful, despite all the economic pain and the bad news all day in the newspapers. But yeah, yeah, that's the problem. Actually, I, I uh, you know, I've stopped watching te- television news. The same. I, I find now when I read the newspaper, I tend to go to things like people I like reading and so forth. Um, was I used to read everything, you know. Um, But the news is so unremittingly bleak. And yet, you know, probably mankind has never been in a better position than it is today. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's quite crazy how people only focus on the negative. Yes. And I mean, you know, the common answer you get, was it better when you were young? And yeah, absolutely. It was fantastic. Like, no, no, it wasn't. Look at the trend. <laughs> Look at the data. It was awful. <laughs> in exactly. comparison. 
Um, yeah. If you dimensionalize it, it's so much better today. And even from an opportunity point. And I think the other issue related is that your phone is dictating what news you're seeing. To some extent, algorithms are surfacing news and you know, it's no longer me selecting the news. Uh, obviously, I'm subscribing to newspapers still where, where I at least have some kind of filter, but it is eating into what, what we consume. Uh, yeah, yeah. And just on a, on a personal level, you decided to become a coach. Not many venture capitalists are coaches. How have you found that experience and, and why? Well, you were a major reason for that. I was impressed by the fact that not only were you building Gusto and getting an MBA on the side, but also you qualified as a coach. I mean, you know, that's, I was so impressed. And so as I think about what I'm doing, I mean, you know, we've got a fantastic working relationship here, but I, you know, I, I don't see running the firm much longer. I see the area where I think I can make the biggest contribution is with the portfolio and working with the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, I thought uh, getting a, a coaching qualification would help me perhaps be a better NED. Mm -hmm. And it's been very eye-opening. Uh, eye I have to say, I went into it with a bit, a bit of skepticism. You know, I wasn't, I just, I didn't see how one year sort of part-time training could turn you into a professional listener and guide, you know, <laughs> but, but actually the tools that you learn are remarkably effective. And I've been very impressed so yes, actually, I, uh, I've, I've, I've completed the course. I'm actually graduating, I think, on September 28th. Congratulations. Like that. That's Thank amazing. You. And uh, I, I didn't plan to do any coaching after I qualified. I thought I'd just use the tools, you know, working with entrepreneurs and, and boards. But actually, what's now obvious is that you, you get better mm -hmm. if you carry on coaching. So I think what I'll do is look to have two or three people that, uh, that I would coach on a professional basis, you know, not people that I, I work with or, or portfolio companies. But I think I'd like to focus on the kind of entrepreneur world mm -hmm. and so and try and get better. You know, uh, working with coaches, you just get better and you're trying new techniques and stuff like that. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm impressed. And um, the other thing I've got to get now, if, once you Trained as a coach, of course, you have to get a supervisor. And I think you—I I heard you on one of your podcasts saying you'd gone through eight coaches. I, I assume you mean I eight have. supervisors, too. I have. No, no, I, my own coaches. So I've worked with people coaching me so many over the years, um, and I also had supervisors, of course, supervising my own coaching. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you learn so much about yourself. Everyone, we all live in a belief-dependent reality. And if if you understand how to unpick people's beliefs and assumptions and, you know, you understand what motivates them, I, I find it enormously powerful for the job I have today. But I also agree, like, you have to constantly actually do it and use it and, and remind yourself. How did you come to go through eight coaches? Is that, <laughs> is that a personality thing? Or that I, that I've no, no. Years or? <laughs> I just had, you know, I've done Gusto for 10 years. I, I've done... I've worked with coaches since the second year of Gusto. And I think it's quite powerful. If you meet a coach, you know, every month for 12 months, you learn a lot. And I think at some point, it just makes sense to change. And so, I mean, my, my coach right now, I've, she and I have worked together for two years. But at some point, you know, she keeps on saying, Timo, you should, you should get a new coach. You know, we've, we've discussed these topics. Stop raising them. You know the answer. I'm setting you free. Uh, and so I think it's powerful just to see, you know, life through a different perspective. And every single coach has just such a different, you know, mentoring ability given their experience and then coaching ability. And it's been, it's been eye-opening. Yeah, and I mean the great thing about coaching is it's 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 problem solving. And and so it's not like, you know, 
psychotherapy and delving into your childhood and what went wrong and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's dealing with quite specific business problems or career issues and then finding a solution to that. So what I like about it in part is that you can make huge progress in four or five sessions. And, mm -hmm. and in fact, training, I had, as you know, and as you did, uh, when, you, when you're trained to be a coach, you have to have you have to work with, with with coachees while you're training and do at least 40 hours of, of, of coaching as you're, as, you're, as, you're, as you're learning. And I found that four or five sessions was, was the perfect number for me um, yeah. with, with, with people. So I could see why you would change coaches that, you know, when you've got different issues you want to deal with. Agree. How daunting did you find the first session? I found it quite daunting. You know, I've never had to contract professionally with someone and where do you start and how do you get them to open up? And at some point you realize it's, you know, it's fine, but. It was, it was very daunting at the beginning. Absolutely. I'm glad it's not just me uh, then. Okay. No, no, absolutely. And you feel, you know, nothing, right. I mean, and, and indeed you don't know very much actually, <laughs> but it's amazing how quickly confidence grows and, and, and you pick things up and, and the structure that of coaching that grow structure, G R O W structure is, is a very effective format, I found. Mm. I agree. I, I use the same template. And and I mean, the similarity to VC investing, it's all about pattern recognition. Coaching is so much about pattern recognition. I mean, you, ha you have to actively listen and not just sit there solutionizing, of course, but everyone has imposter syndrome. Everyone, I mean, all these topics are so recurring. It's, it's quite, yeah. yeah, almost scary how similar the topics are. Absolutely. It is, it's very it's really relevant to the whole venture world and in fact you know we've, we've got a platform here which uh which Lucci, whom you know runs and does a fantastic job Lucci levy and what she's now structured is we have a we have a mentoring program and um and there are you know there are people from gusto on that program um where people can either be mentors or mentorees and uh, which works brilliantly particularly for people starting out so you're uh, you know you're starting out in marketing And to be mentored by the CMO of a company which was much further along the road is a hugely valuable thing to, to get. So that's the mentoring. But we're now doing coaching as well. And in fact, we're making the company that I, I trained as a coach was called uh, Mailer Campbell. And you've got to find coaches to train with. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're, we're, we're connecting all the portfolio wow. employees and indeed the MMC team, you know, uh, who want to experience coaching to To, to, to do that, it costs you nothing, basically. And, you, mm -hmm. and, and, and you, you, the price is you're working with somebody who's learning as they go along. But from that, we're now going to develop into more um, professional coach recommendations from other people and, and try and build that out um, because I, everybody benefits from coaching. There's no question about it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, so powerful. But, I mean, you are coaching. And, and by the way, the introductions, I, I do want to mention the one point I think that has added so much value in my personal life and at Gusto is the introductions you've made uh, over the last you know, what, eight, eight years. Uh, and I'm very grateful for these. That's That's been enormously powerful. So I'm glad to hear you're kind of rolling it out at scale uh, in a very structured way. Well, that's very kind of you, Timo. And so you... Yeah. you Tremendous success, companies growing, 27 people, extremely active in, in, in the community. You're coaching people, you're mentoring people. How, how are you still learning and all of that? You're teaching so many other people. What, what, what's your source? I don't think I'm so good at listening, actually. And I think that's one great thing about coaching. My wife would certainly confirm, would agree, with, <laughs> agree with me on that point. And I think one of the good things about coaching, of course, is not because mentoring is actually you're imparting your wisdom to the other people and they have to listen to you. But coaching, you have to, it's all about listening. 
Mm. And I think that's been very, very helpful to me, um, actually, uh, that whole process. So I've, over the years, I've, I've tried to do something new every year. And so coaching was the big thing I've done this year. I, I, I confess that my typing is pretty primitive. So I think that's the next thing I've got to conquer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, I, I think life is all about learning, you know, uh, and you never stop. And one of the huge privileges of the work we do is that you're learning about new technology. You're learning about new applications. You're learning about new solutions to problems. And it just it just never stops. Yeah, no, life is so rich. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, any, any advice for entrepreneurs, but also people working in scale-ups, startups, Well, I know, actually, I think you asked a good, interesting question of, uh, of Tracy, because uh, by the way, I noticed that um, three of the uh, MMC alumni have been interviewed by you on the on the, the, the Bolt Flavors uh, podcast. That's uh, It's terrific. a big feature, yeah. <laughs> you were asking, you know, what's more important, um, vision or execution? And I, I do have very clear views on that. But to me, vision is absolutely essential in a founder. Execution, if you can't execute well, you can hire it in if need be. I mean, it's not easy. You've got to hire some really good mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. but you can't hire in vision. Mm -hmm. you, you can hire in execution. And it's interesting, you know, when you look at the history of VC in California, you know, where it really all started, in the early days, the firms were trying to um, replace, uh, impose professional CEOs. If you look back at companies like eBay and Cisco and Yahoo!, They, they imposed professional CEOs on the founders. And indeed, wow. with Google, they tried to do it at Google. Yes. Um, and the, you know, the, the founders resisted and then in, in the end did capitulate and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, Eric Schmidt was hired, right? Mm -hmm. So that shows you that clearly the, the vision of California was that they were looking for people who had the massive idea and the massive insight that could build a gigantic company and they would bring in somebody professional to, 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 to run it. I mean, that, that has all changed, of course, now. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't imagine that um, Kleiner Perkins would try to impose uh, outside CEOs today. But, but I think it is, there's an insight there that, you know, you, you can't, you, you must have the vision. You, you can't just have a, an executing mentality to, to start a business. And then the trick is to, because execution is much more difficult than people estimate. It's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Mm. And, and that's where hiring a fantastic team and getting the right people in and going to the kind of trouble you've gone to to hire the right people makes a huge difference. Mm. And, and Gusto is a brilliant example of, you know, of, of such high quality execution. Yeah, the, the people so impressed by the team. But but it is challenging, and you know the bigger you get, the more you have to work on the operating model and the execution and so on. But I think that's that's fantastic advice. Thank you so much. Last question: How how do you personally unwind? You're working long hours. You're constantly thinking about topics, as I'm sure um, I well, as I do. How how do you unwind? What do you do in your spare time? Well, I try to stay fit. So you know. I do a fair amount of exercise. I'm very uh, pleased to say that we have a, a leaderboard here of steps per day because we backed a brilliant insurance company called uh, Ulife and you get rewards for staying fit and, and not, you know, and so, um, so I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the top of the leaderboard uh, currently. I have been for a while, which is amazing. Which is so I have a very, very fit dog. You know, the dog is, uh, you know, kept in good shape. So what else do I do? Well, I, you know, I, um, 
I, I, I'm really interested in, in art and contemporary art, and I, and I really enjoy going to galleries when, when there's time, and, and I, I, buy, I buy the odd piece. I've got a fantastic family, and my sons are now grown up. But one's here in London and one's in New York, and I spend as much time as possible with them and, and their wives. Um, and I do a bit of gardening. And then, you know, my wife and I... Um, if we go on holiday somewhere, we try and go somewhere interesting. You know, um, I've been trekking in Nepal and we've been to Bhutan. Yeah, you know, wow. just mm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Bruce. I learned a lot and I, I've known you for many years, but I still learned so much about you. So thank you. Well, I've learned from you too, Timo. So thanks. It's a mutual, mutual uh, appreciation society there. <laughs> <laughs>